you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 4. 1 Samuel, chapter 4. We're going to read this chapter this morning, and then we're going to uh, uh, consider it together. 1 Samuel, chapter 4, is where I want to direct your attention uh, this morning. While you're turning there, let me just echo what Scott said. Boy, am I so appreciative of all the people who have come and uh, helped to uh, get this room first last Sunday to tear it apart, and then on Friday, a large group of people were here, uh, well, a small but faithful group of people were here to help put it back together, and uh, really um, appreciative um, of their um, service. Actually, last Sunday with our plumbing disaster, and uh, then uh, with our lighting, it's been a busy week in this building, and a lot of people have um, worked hard to make sure it's back in place. So we're thankful to God for this building and the people who are willing to serve in it. 1 Samuel chapter 4, and I'm going to start reading in the second half of the verse. My Bible calls it, The Philistines Capture the Ark. That's where we're going to start. So here's what God's Word says. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has ever happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured and Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. That same day, a Benjaminite, a Benjamite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road, watching because his heart feared for the ark of God. When the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town set up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, what is the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old and whose eyes had failed so that he could not see. He told Eli, I have just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. Eli asked, what happened, my son? The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines, and the army has suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of of God has been captured. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken, and he died, for he was an old man, and he was Heavy. He had led Israel 40 years. 
His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but was overcome by her labor pains. As she was dying, the woman attending her said, Don't despair, you have given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. On Thursday morning, we woke up to uh, two conditions. On the ground and in the air was the sight that thrills the hearts of school children everywhere, snow. Uh, in the house, though, we woke up to a cold house. There was no heat. Um, the thermostat is set so that uh, the heat is supposed to come on about 30 minutes before we get up, uh, and it, was, it did not. It was not frigid in the house. It was about 60 degrees, uh, but we try to keep things a little bit warmer. It encourages getting out of bed if it's over 60 in the house. Uh, now, the problem we soon discovered was that we had run out of oil. Um, our oil company is supposed to make regular deliveries to the church, and they do. When they come to the church, though, they're supposed to also stop at the parsonage and fill the tanks there, except that got dropped off of the delivery slip, so our tanks were empty. Now, uh, think for a minute with me what would have happened if we had tried to solve the problem in our house uh, by turning up the thermostat, by hitting that little up arrow. What would have happened? Uh, we do it occasionally, if occasionally we're in a part of the house that we don't expect to and it's not scheduled to be that warm in that spot, we occasionally turn it up a little bit so it's a little bit more comfortable and, and usually it works. But if we had done this, of course, on Thursday, nothing would have happened because the problem was not with the thermostat, the problem was actually with uh, in the basement. It was deeper and more fundamental. This morning, I want to suggest to you that that's often our first tendency when facing problems. That our, our first tendency is to, is to quickly focus on the surface and easy solutions and not to focus on the deeper, more relevant, more central issues. It's not just a mechanical problem. We do it with real, deep, personal, spiritual problems. Um, we look at the temperature it's too cold, so we go to the thermostat instead of checking the tanks. Unless you fill the tanks, the thermostat isn't going to do anything. Maybe an example will help. It's uh, Valentine's Day is on Tuesday. It's the day for, for romance, right? Um, some of you, because it occasionally happens in every marriage, some of you uh, maybe are in one of those periods of time when things are just a bit off, when it's a little bit cooler in your marriage than it usually is. You're just not clicking with one another like you usually do. And you were reading a magazine or you read a book or your friend told you that you should institute weekly date nights in your marriage. Um, uh, a time when you and your spouse get away from the children and their house responsibilities of the house, and that will uh, help your relationship. Um, date nights are certainly not going to hurt, but they're no guarantee. How many times have you been in a restaurant and seen a couple eating dinner and they never say a word to each other the whole time they're sitting there? Uh, if they're over 50, they're staring off into space. If they're under 50, they're staring at their screens. 
Uh, the reason date nights can be helpful is because they create space. We'll go down from the scheduling. They create space for communication. Now we've gotten a little bit further down here under the surface. Um, and, and communication is um, necessary and, and helpful. But you even can go down, you should, you need to, for that communication to be useful, go down even another level to, um, well, sometimes marriage is cool because of some unmet expectation or some slight or some relational pattern that are setting things off. That's where you need to go. Uh, date nights as useful as they could be would, could be like adjusting the thermostat when it's the tanks that are empty that you need to focus on. Well, we have before us a passage of Scripture that describes a situation that is dramatically more dire. It's much, much more terrible than a cold marriage. And the solution that these people pursue is not just surfacey. That's not just the problem. The problem is that it's dangerously wrong, the solution that they try. Now remember that the book of, the, of Samuel describes the transition from um, judges to a monarchy. There's a transition in this passage. Um, and as part of this transli- transition, God is cleaning house. He's cleaning house by removing the high priest Eli and all of his uh, family from preeminence. God has a replacement in place. Samuel is going to uh, lead the people spiritually and he's going to anoint the first kings. And chapter 4 is the story of how Eli and his family are removed. It's a devastating dynastic blow. It's an event we should expect though because it was prophesied twice. But alongside these narrative details, this story, this chapter also helps us, I think, to assess the situation in the midst of suffering. Imagine that you woke up one morning and you just felt terrible, really, really sick. So you decide to go to the doctor and you go to the doctor and she examines you. She assesses you. She takes your blood pressure. She takes your pulse. She looks in your ears. She listens to your lungs. And and if she can't figure out what's going on, then off to the lab you go for some blood work or some x-rays. Something is wrong. What can you tell about what's wrong? What can you figure out? Well... Here in this chapter, we have what's wrong. And what I want to do is I want to look in these three scenes that are in this story to find out what we can about suffering. It doesn't tell us everything there is to know in the Bible about suffering. This is one small slice. There's nothing in this passage about God's compassion in the midst of suffering. There's nothing in this passage about the benefits that God brings out of suffering. Well, that's maybe just tangential. Um, It doesn't talk about how God uses other people to try to help us in the midst of suffering. That's not in this passage at all. But there's a slice of what the Bible teaches here. And that's what I want to show you this morning. Three observations, three things we can learn in the midst of suffering as we assess this situation. Okay, Here is the first one. The first one is that human beings are slow to get to the heart of the problem. Human beings are slow to get to the heart of the problem. Here is our thermostat versus oil tank problem in this passage. The first scene is this battle between the Philistines and the Israelites. Uh, the Philistines are most well known for their, for their giant Goliath. The Philistines uh, were from the islands in the Mediterranean and they moved into Palestine. Actually, that's where the name Palestine comes from, Philistine. They sound kind of the same. That's where... Palestine comes from the Philistines. Well, 
Those, these people moved into that area about the same time, a little bit before the Israelites moved up into the promised land from Egypt. And the Philistines, during this period of time, are the greatest competitors with the Israelites for them enjoying the land. The Philistines are uh, very warlike. They have superior uh, military technology. And we're going to read about them a lot in the book of Samuel. They're the great villains here. The text makes it sound like the Israelites started this war. Now, the Israelites went out to fight. But actually, the Greek translation of the Old Testament says that the Philistines are the aggressors, which is probably right. The Philistines started this. I wonder, I think that maybe the Philistines here come out for war to take revenge on the Israelites because of what Samson had done. Remember Samson, the book of Judges? He'd been captured. He had, uh, with his mighty strength, knocked down a temple, killed thousands of Philistines. And it appears that the Philistines are on the ra- uh, rampage uh, in order to take revenge on the Israelites for what Samson has done. Uh, th- and it seems like their target may be Shiloh, where the Lord's house is, where Eli is. They're going to go after the God of the Israelites. Uh, the text tells us here that the battle, the first battle, is terrible. It's a terrible disaster for the Israelites. 4,000 soldiers are killed. And then they ask a very crucial question in verse 3. It's a very important question. Verse 3 says, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? What's going on? What's wrong? Why did we lose? Why did this calamity come? It's a very important question. In fact, it's a key question. It's a question that we don't often answer very well. In fact, there's a couple of ways that we can go wrong in answering this question. First of all, we can fail to consult God's word. Um, We're in the midst of three chapters in the book of Samuel that are sometimes called the Ark story because the Ark of the Covenant is central to the story here. It's the Ark stories But it's interesting, Samuel is missing from them. Where is he? He was the main character in the first three chapters. What happened to Samuel? Where did he go? I don't know the answer to that question. I'm not sure what's happening. But the way that this book is written is that it it indicates to us, it shows us what happens when God's word is missing from God's people. Why didn't somebody, when they went to Shiloh to get the Ark of the Covenant, why didn't somebody uh, say to Samuel, hey, what do you think we should do? We lost the Philistines. Do you have any advice? What does God have to say to us about this? No one consulted with God. They just went and, and grabbed the Ark of the Covenant. This is what happens. Disastrous things happen when God's people don't have God's word or don't read God's word or don't use God's word. Now, the second way that we answer this question wrongly uh, or poorly, what went wrong, is we focus on the external, easy causes and solutions. We focus on the easy, external causes and solutions. Again, thermostat, not oil tanks. Let's talk about the text here. So, the Israelites conclude that the reason that they have lost the battle is because God was not with them. Um, he, he was not present in power to protect and deliver his people. And in order for God to be with them, they needed the box. They needed the Ark of the Covenant. Most of you know what that is. Uh, it, the Ark of the Covenant is a box. It was made in the days of Moses at God's command. God had told them to, uh, to make this. 
It was a wooden box. It was covered with gold. The cover had um, cherubim on it, and inside were the Ten Commandments in the box. Now, why did God give them this box? The box, the Ark of the Covenant, was to be a symbol of God's presence. Um, There is this deeply rooted sense in humanity that we want to be able to see the gods that we worship. We want to have eyes to see them. That's actually the way it's supposed to be. We are living in an aberration, a, 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 a strange period of time where we cannot see God. Just think about it here. In the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, God walked with uh, Adam and Eve in the garden and they could see him. At the end of the Bible story, in the book of Revelation, the great promise, the great fulfillment is that we will see God face to face. We're in this period of time where we can't see God. We walk by faith, not by sight. This is a weird period of time. Well, how do people respond to it? Well, throughout history, people have responded to this. We can see God by making statues of the gods. They make their idols. And, and God had very specifically restricted the Israelites and told them they could not make statues of him. They could not make idols of him. They were forbidden from doing this. But God was kind and did give them something they could see, and it was the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was a symbol of God's presence. It was to be treated like his throne or like his footstool. So they think that the reason that they lost the battle is that they didn't have the Ark of the Covenant with them. So they go to Shiloh and they get it and they bring it back. Now, this is not a completely crazy idea. Uh, Do you remember how important the Ark of the Covenant was in the Battle of Jericho? Remember the Battle of Jericho? So what do they do? They get the Ark of the Covenant. This is what God commanded them to do. They're supposed to march around the city of Jericho with the Ark of the Covenant seven days in a row. And the last day, they're supposed to march around the city of Jericho with the Ark of the Covenant uh, seven times. It was a military parade, and the Ark is out front. God is the grand marshal of this parade. And on the seventh time, they were supposed to march around the city and shout. Well, they're shouting in this story, isn't there? When the Ark of the Covenant comes into the camp, they shout. Yeah, And what happens when they shout in Jericho? The walls come a-tumbling down. Right? Maybe if they get the Ark of the Covenant and they bring it to this battle here, the Philistines will come tumbling down. Maybe. That, though, is the easy external answer. God is not present with us, they think to themselves. So what we need is the box. But the real problem is actually much deeper God is not with them because of their sin, not because they don't have the ark close enough. They have no thought of the status of their relationship with God, their actual relationship with God. They just think they need the ark. It is easier to perform rituals than to do serious heart work that the people needed to do. What the Israelites did actually here is superstitious and it's manipulative. They treated God like a vending machine. When I go to get something out of a vending machine, I don't care if the vending machine loves me. I don't, think, I don't care if I've walked in respect towards the vending machine. All I care about is the fact that if I put quarters in this slot, I should get a Diet Coke out of the bottom. That's the way vending machines work. In goes my money, out comes my food. That's the way it's supposed to work. In comes the box, out comes the victory. That's the way it's supposed to work, right? Human beings, we are often inclined to uh, replace or reduce deep spiritual realities 
just superstition and ritual. It's what we do. Several years ago, I was called to the bedside of a man I did not know. He was gravely ill. The reason I was there is because uh, some of his grandkids had come to Awana. So I walked into the hospital room, and there he was. He had a very serious heart attack. He was in ICU. There were tubes protruding from his body. His family was sitting all around him. And as he laid there in the bed, I noticed that lying on his chest were all kinds of medals, Uh, medals for various saints. There was a Star of David on his chest. Uh, if somebody had had a rabbit's foot in the room, it would have been there on his chest. And um, all of those trinkets, and now they had a Baptist minister to boot, they had everything, right? Actually, they had nothing. Put the quarters in, got to get the coins in, I'm going to get the miracle out that I want, because that's the way God works, right? The text points out two problems here with this superstitious attempt to manipulate God. First, it didn't work. It didn't work. The Philistines had some familiarity with God. Their, their theology is a little off, and their view of the facts is a little bit wrong. But, but um, bringing the ark of God into the camp didn't uh, cause them to wither away in fear. It actually raised their resolve. Go and fight. Be men and win this battle. Second, the second problem, though, is that this easy external solution didn't actually get to the heart of the problem. And the text indicates that to us. It says um, in the text, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Oh. So what you're supposed to do when you read that, oh, Hophni and Phinehas. You know, in the Hebrew, it's impossible to do in English because of how English works. But in uh, the Hebrew language, Hophni and Phinehas, every time they appear in this chapter, are at the end of the sentence. This is the trouble. This is the problem. You can't have God and Hophni and Phinehas at the same time because they're as crooked as they come. Uh, 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 well, they have Hophni and Phinehas because they're supposed to be the right people, right? They're supposed to have the right pedigree. They have this terrible character then, though. You can't have God and Hophni and Phinehas. You can't be trusting in God and trusting in Hophni and Phinehas at the same time. Human beings are slow to get to the heart of the problem. We settle for what's external and what's easy, not what is beneath. And often what is beneath is some pattern of sin. Often what is beneath is not even just some actions, some things that I have done, but real heart issues that are beneath what's going on. Every single person that you see, no matter who they are, what they look like, they have inside of them this complex thing that God has called, that God calls a heart. And it's full of thoughts and motivations and desires and values and it is beneath the surface and you are wise, you are a good friend if you help bring some of those things to the surface because our, 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 um, our default mode is to try to fix everything just on the surface and never talk about what's beneath. What I want to encourage you this morning is I want you to encourage you to understand that nearly every form of suffering that you encounter reveals areas in your life that are ripe for repentance. 
Every form of suffering that you encounter reveals areas of your life that are ripe for repentance. Either because, as in the case of Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, there's a direct connection, a direct line that you can draw between their behavior and their uh, suffering, or because suffering itself uncovers some sort of sinful response, some sort of, this is what suffering does, it unmasks Ways in which I fall short of God's glory. Ways in which my feelings or my thoughts or my attitudes are unworthy of the God who created me. You will never experience deep joy without deep repentance first. Our, repentance, our tendency is to stay on the surface. I wonder if that's one of the reasons why God commands us in James 5 to confess our sins to one another. Why does he do that? I don't think it's so that we can get a quick and easy answer, a quick and easy absolution. Here's my list. Tell me I'm forgiven. I I think it's so that when you tell your friends about this, they can help you ask those questions about what's going on underneath. What heart issues are there here that you should talk about, that we need to talk about, that, that we should uncover? We're slow. Human beings are slow to get to the heart of the problem. Now, there's two more scenes in this passage. We're going to address them a little bit more hastily today. The first uh, scene, again, teaches us that we're, we're in this particular example of suffering. Human beings, we're slow to get to the heart of the problem. Now, second here, notice, God does fulfill his promises both to bless and to judge. God does fulfill his promises to bless and to judge. We love to celebrate God's goodness. We talk about his promises to protect us and care for us and provide for us and deliver us. And that's awesome. But God has the same faithfulness with his warnings that you reap what you sow. Now, Eli is the main character in this scene. And as we encounter Eli, here he is sitting down. Eli is always sitting down in the text. He's either sleeping or sitting down in this whole book. He is passive. He's an ineffective leader. When, when disaster strikes the army, he's the last to hear about it, isn't he? The, the messenger comes into Shiloh and, and tells the news and everybody's weeping and crying. And then Eli says, hey, what happened? What happened? He's heavy. He's so heavy, in fact, that he is a burden to his people. And, and here is the end of the influence of his line. No one who reads this story should be shocked. He's been warned twice that this is going to happen. We find here in this, in this passage a reminder that God is the sovereign Lord. And as creator, he exercises his right to judge his creation. He's the righteous one. He is the one to whom we are all accountable. He sets the standard by which we are judged, and he judges all with justice. Today's Abraham Lincoln's birthday. It's his 208th birthday. I didn't even buy him a card. Uh, if you go to the Lincoln Memorial and uh, visit it, you will find carved on the walls inside that temple, uh, you will find uh, the Gettysburg Address and uh, his second inaugural address. By most accounts, Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address is the best uh, presidential inaugural address ever delivered. What's interesting about it is that it's not really very much of a political speech. It's actually quite theological. Um, Abraham Lincoln's relationship with the church has been debated and discussed. um, But he read his Bible and he thought carefully about what was there. 
Um, here, he was trying to explain in the inaugural uh, uh, what God might have been doing in ordaining the civil war, uh, the, the great tragedy that had uh, divided the nation. Uh, listen to a line. You'll probably recognize this from his address. He said, Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so it still must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. It's not something we're used to in our presidential proclamations. Um, Lincoln delivered this speech, and he was fairly confident that it would not be very popular. In fact, he had a friend he wrote to about this, and he said um, that he doesn't expect what he said to go down very well because men do not like to hear that their purposes are at odds with God's purposes. Well, here it is in this passage again. The Bible and our own experience teach us that, that we human beings don't care much for this truth that, that God is our judge, but it is true. It doesn't matter if you like it or not, and I could, maybe I will at another time, argue that I think you should like it. It doesn't change the fact that God is our judge. And I want to be careful this morning, because I think some of you are here this morning and you have particularly tender consciences. Those of you who have this, this temptation towards great morbid introspection, I have, I have already talked about how uh, we don't get deep enough, and, and some of you, you get so deep, you get lost. There is this direct connection between Hophni and Phinehas and Eli and, Eli and their, their sins and their suffering, but notice that God has been kind to them to tell them about it. He, God is not unkind to leave us helpless. Uh, he, he searches us, He knows us, and He tells us. He's, he's, he's not unkind enough to leave us without help in looking beneath the surface. Remember what the psalmist said, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We pray that way. We're looking beneath the surface. We pray that way, but we pray it with the confidence that God keeps his word, that God will, will help us. Not a passage that should drive us to morbid introspection. It's a passage that should drive us to seek, to look, to think, to pray, but not to get lost in that. Now, finally, here the scene where we have the birth of the baby Ichabod. I don't recommend that as a name for your child. What do we learn here about Ichabod? Unless your last name is Crane, then it would be great. But um, what do we learn here about this? For God's people, even the lowest point is not hopeless. For God's people, even the lowest point is not hopeless. Book of Samuel begins with the birth of a son, doesn't it? Samuel's born and it's great. And here in chapter 4 we have another son born and it is just grief, grief. Poor Ichabod, the day he's born, what his grandfather, his uncle, his father, his mother, they all die, the ark is captured, his home is destroyed. 
uh, a little tangent here. The text doesn't say specifically that the city of Shiloh is destroyed, um, but it's likely the Philistines came and, and did that, destroyed this place, this city where the Lord's house was. Uh, Shiloh is never mentioned again in the book of Samuel as a place of religious fidelity. Um, Jeremiah uses the prophet, uh, Jeremiah the prophet uses the city of Shiloh as a warning to the city of Jerusalem uh, that it will be destroyed too. It seems like uh, Moses' tabernacle is destroyed here and everything that, that was in it except the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is spared because it's carried off by the Philistines. Everything else is destroyed. This is the end of Moses' tabernacle and it's the end of Moses-like leaders. This is the lowest point possible. The glory is gone. The Ark is gone. This is the symbol of the nation's relationship with God, but somebody else has it. What happens to their relationship with God now? Without the ark, what are they? Maybe you can think about it in terms of your wedding ring. People occasionally lose their wedding rings. Every now and then, it seems like a lot lately, I've been hearing stories of someone who found their wedding ring after 45 years. They lost it in the garden and came up in the middle of a rutabag and they're just so thrilled. And some, you know, people lose their wedding rings. It happens. It's sad, but it's often not the end of your relationship. But just imagine, though, a situation in which one of you has committed some great betrayal and your spouse discovers this great betrayal and, and they, they, they come, they confront you about it and they take off their wedding ring and drop it in front of you. What's going to happen to their relationship? The ark is gone. It's been carried away. People have come from slavery in Egypt. They've been led to Moses. They led by Moses. They conquered the land. But this is the lowest point that they have ever been. It's only going to be equaled by the end of Second Chronicles when they lose the Ark of the Covenant again, and they still have not found the Ark. And yet, the situation is not hopeless. It's not completely hopeless. I know this for a number of factors. Uh, most plainly, the story continues. We're in chapter four. There's a chapter five. <laughs> this could be the end of the story, right? But the story continues. Second, I know this isn't hopeless because there is hopefulness in the fact that God is cleaning house. He's actually saving the nation from this broken family that is at its head. He's cleaning house so that he can rebuild it. He told Eli, he'd said to them, you're going off the scene and a faithful priest is going to come. He's getting rid of the old so he can bring in the new. That's hopeful. You will never again find deep joy without deep repentance first. And God's cleaning house. That's good news that he does that. But even more, I think there's hopefulness in how this defeat happens. My Bible translates Ichabod as the glory has departed. Glory has departed. It might be better to translate it as the glory has been exiled. The glory has been exiled. Now the word exiled is important in the Bible. Moses had told the people that if they disobeyed God, they would be exiled. They would have to leave the land. The readers of Samuel, when Samuel was put together with, with Chronicles and, and Kings in that seven-book collection, uh, the, the readers of, of Samuel had themselves been exiled. It was what they deserved because of the violation of their covenant with God. But do you see what happens here in this passage? It's astounding. Oh, astounding. 
In this passage, it's not the people who are exiled, but it is God himself who is exiled. The ark is carried off in the hands of Israel's enemies. It should be the people who are carried off in the hands of their enemies, but it is God himself who suffers this great indignity. The story is not hopeless because it points ahead to an event that happened 2,000 years ago in our past. The book of Hebrews draws our attention to it. Jesus, God in the flesh, himself was exiled. He went outside the city to suffer on the cross for us. In the book of Samuel, the Israelites deserved to be exiled. They deserved to be taken out of the land, but God himself was taken out of the land. In the story of the universe, God's people deserve his holy wrath, but God the Son, Jesus, bore it instead for us. He died on the cross, he rose again, so that we might be forgiven, so that we might be set free. We celebrate that when we partake of these elements, that God was exiled for us. I read this book, we're only in chapter 4 so far, I read this book, And you know what? I want to be like Samuel. I want to be the faithful prophet. But my life is actually more like Eli's than Samuel's. I want to be like Hannah. I want to pray like this and rejoice in God like this. But my life is actually more like Hophni's life than Hannah's life. I want to be like David. I want to be the warrior poet. I want to defeat giants. But I'm more like Saul the faithless king. Good news in the scriptures is that for every Saul, there's a David. For every Hophni, there's a Hannah. For every Eli, there's a Samuel. And for every sinner, there is a Savior. God's anointed king. He was anticipated in this book and he has come. We look back and we think about him. We honor him. We worship him. Let's pray, shall we? Father, it is uh, difficult for us to uh, enter into fully the great grief of this family on this day. This poor woman who gave birth and died in despair over what had happened to her nation and her own family. This is a despairing situation. And yet we thank you even for the hopefulness that is there. We honor you as the just and righteous God who keeps his word both to bless and to judge. Lord, we we come before you this morning and we confess there are many, many days where our unworthiness to be saved by you, to be rescued by you, comes before us. Uh, We stumble. We fail. James wrote about someone who could possibly keep all of the law and stumble in one point. He's still guilty. Father, our story is the opposite of that. We, We have broken all of the laws. And you saved us. You rescued us through the Lord Jesus. How grateful we are to you for that. Father, grant that we might be people who think beneath the surface, we don't want to treat you like a vending machine or treat following Jesus like it's ritual 
uh, alone, that it's a ritual that is central. Lord, we pray that you would um, do heart work in us and that you would remind us in bleak days like this of the hopefulness we have because Jesus of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray these things together, saying, Amen.